electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Stocks are well off the lows of the session. In fact, we're at the highs of the day right now as investors try to figure out whether the goalposts are moving on the Fed's rate hike strategy. The Nasdaq seeing the sharpest decline as we head into the close. This is the make or break hour for your money. Welcome, everyone, to Closing Bell. I'm Sarah Eisen. Take a look at where we stand in the market. Nasdaq's down, as I mentioned, six-tenths of one percent. The Dow is positive, and it is up now, uh, as I mentioned, at the highs. Up 138, spent most of the day lower. The S&P 500 under pressure by about a third of 1%. You do have some groups that are green. That's the defensive groups like consumer staples, utilities, and healthcare. That's what's leading this market. Technology, materials, real estate, communication services, they're all down. Here's the scorecard, though, for the week on the major averages. Because despite the zigging and zagging, Dow S&P 500 are lower by a bit. The Nasdaq faring better. It's actually higher for the week. And the Russell 2000 Index of Small Caps on pace for a decent week of gains. If you look at the best performing sector of the week, that would be consumer discretionary. Names like Tesla really helping out. Energy got hit hard this week, down 6.6%. Coming up on the show today, we'll talk to Citigroup's chief U.S. economist about his outlook for the Fed after all of this week's data and why he says it's becoming more likely that rates stay higher for longer. Later, Spruce Point Capital's Ben Axler will tell us why he is shorting C3 AI And why he thinks all that buzz around ChatGPT is just a distraction. He'll join us exclusively with his latest report out just this afternoon. Let's begin, though, with the broader market. A volatile session following yesterday's late session drop. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli with today's dashboard. How do you add it all up? Interesting, Sarah. It's been a choppy, somewhat anxious week, but really looking more like a prolonged pause for the last couple of weeks on the charts. Uh, yes, we have a shot at closing flat on the week for the S&P 500. 40.90 would be that number. Uh, we're less than 3% off the early February highs. So it seems as if there has been a lot of angst about the newly hawkish edge to some of the recent Fed speak, but not really taking its toll so far on a net basis. So uh, if you just look at the line coming off the October lows, that gets you, as I've been saying, around that 3,900 to to 4,000 area of the S&P where you would still say it's an uptrend, we're pulling back, and it's not that big a deal. Uh, So far, very contained uh, pullback, I would say. But, you know, anytime you want to hear people say that the rally has carried on too far, well, maybe so, but we were higher than that in August. So right now, trading range chopping around, still decently supported right now. It's an expiration, monthly expiration Friday for options. Sometimes that kind of traps the market around certain index levels. Take a look at uh, the 60-40 balanced asset allocation model here. This is AOR, an ETF that tracks that that strategy. It's a global version of it. What I find interesting is this sort of really nice pattern. I mean, you don't necessarily trade a 60-40 portfolio based on technical indicators, but that's usually says we're getting well supported. Now, even if you look at five-year annualized returns for the the 60-40 strategy, it's pretty subpar, less than 5% total return annualized. That's below what you've gotten historically. Last year was one of the worst starts ever for it. So you have a, maybe a little bit of mean reversion tailwinds there. Now you have some stocks and bonds have both backed off their highs uh, so far in the last couple of weeks, Sarah. So clearly some headwinds to it, but uh, it's better situated in a way than stocks alone. 
Because bonds have worked better. Because bonds have worked better. So you not. had the rally there. Now you have the income from a decent level of yield that provides a little bit of a cushion on an ongoing basis. Mike, thank you. And we're going to talk more about the 60-40 portfolio and why one firm is advocating now for a different ratio later in the show when we are joined by the CEO of Alternative Investments Platform, Case. Let's turn, though, to the economy because it was a week of surprises for investors with inflation coming in hotter than expected, retail sales blowing past estimates, and the housing data all over the map. Now Wall Street firms are changing their predictions for the Fed's rate path. Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, and Citi calling for 25 basis point hikes through June. They see a peak Fed funds rate reaching five and a quarter to five and a half. That's higher than a lot of these firms were in the past. Joining us now is Citigroup's chief U.S. economist, Andrew Hollenhorst. Andrew, you've been at June. These other guys are catching up with you, right? How <laughs> long right. have you had this prediction? So we've had this prediction for some time. And basically what we thought would happen is what's transpired with the data where we had a little period where core inflation looked cooler, where some of the activity data was coming in a little bit softer. And now we see the data that's come out over the last two weeks. It started with that strong jobs report, retail sales that's telling you activity is okay. And most importantly, core inflation still coming in strong. We see it in CPI. We see it in the producer prices also, PPI. So you're not changing the forecast, though, to include a 50 in there, are you, despite some chatter around that? There's been some talk about 50. I think looking at the data today, you could go back to that last meeting in February and say maybe it should have been a 50, but you can't go back and do that. They did slow down to 25 basis points. I think there's a pretty strong feeling across the committee that they're trying to find where that right terminal rate is. And as they're searching for that terminal rate, they want to move at a little bit of a slower pace. So 25 basis point pace, I think, is going to stay for now. If we had a big reacceleration in inflation, maybe we could get a 50 basis point hike again. But I think that's relatively unlikely. March is going to be 25. I mean, one reason the market has been resilient in the face of rising expectations for now a June hike starting to get priced in is that it looks increasingly likely that the, the soft landing scenario plays out you know, where, where the economy is in better shape at the end of all this. So I, I think we just want to be really careful in distinguishing between a soft landing and a landing that happens later and is maybe even a little bit harder. So what we see in the data now is a U.S. economy that's still overheated, that's still producing inflationary pressure. And that's good news for activity in the short term. We're hiring a lot of workers. Economy is still growing. Services consumption has been strong. That's all good news. The challenge for the Fed is that with all that demand out there, all that spending power, inflation stays high. And does the Fed eventually need to move even more aggressively and push even harder on the economy? So you're, the risk to your forecast now is more hikes. More hikes. Not less. Yeah, I think if, if activity holds up, if core inflation stays around where it's been or maybe even picks up, and it could with how tight the labor market is, you could actually see the Fed hiking beyond the 5% range. You could start to think about the 6% range. I think that's still not the base case, not the most likely case, but that's the risk. The other thing all of economists are doing are pushing out their recession forecast to later. Is that something you've done? Right. So we haven't actually moved ours. We've had ours in the second half of 2023. We think we might still get there in the second half of 2023. But to your point on the data over the last couple of weeks, Good. it's not there in the data. So we'll see. That could be pushing out. But you think it's coming? We no think, what, we, because we, of all the we think it's coming. I, I think if you look at the historical record, if you look at the tightening that the Fed's put in, the historical experience is to bring inflation down. You need a tightening of financial conditions that slows the economy. That's probably going to be a recession. That's probably how we get back to 2% inflation. Which also actually 
speaks to the fact that stocks may have been overexcited here and you think that there's some sort of correction that needs to happen. I, I think there's a little bit of a differential between the narrative that's in the fixed income markets and in the equity markets. And I think that that soft landing narrative has been quite strong in the equity market, maybe with some of the data that's come in now around inflation being a little bit stronger, markets are starting to reassess that. When do you pencil in a cut? So great question. You need to see inflation coming down, certainly below 4% before they can think about cutting, probably more getting into the 3% range. We think that happens in 2023, maybe early 2023, but remember- Wait, 24, you mean? Sorry, 2024, but remember that- that, that's Early is now. (laughs) That's premised on a slowdown in 2023, a slowdown in growth in 2023 to get that lower inflation in 2024. So you don't see cuts this year and maybe into next? I think cuts this year are very unlikely. It'd probably be next year at the earliest. Got it. Andrew, thank you very much for talking us through all that. Thank you. Thank you. Look at shares of C3 AI. They've more than doubled this year as the buzz swells around chat GPT and artificial intelligence. But investment manager Spruce Point is short the stock, has been for some time. Spruce Point founder Ben Axler will join us exclusively with a first look at his latest report on the company. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. Dow's up 111 points. We could try to explain what it's like to get your work done on a John Deere mower, compact tractor, or Gator XUV. But to really understand the feeling, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Artificial intelligence. It's been the talk of Wall Street this year thanks to ChatGPT. The excitement leading to a huge rally in shares of C3 AI, which has the ticker symbol AI. But a short seller report from Spruce Point Capital Management is raising new concerns about the company and the stock price, saying the price movement is not reflecting fundamental reality. Spruce Point initially shorted this stock back in February of last year, is sharing its latest report with us here first on Closing Bell. Joining us now for an exclusive is Ben Axler from Spruce Point Capital Management. Ben, welcome to the show. Good to see you. Thank you for... Thank you for having me. So you, so you shorted it back in February last year. I think, I think you're up on it. It's down from that point, but it was down a whole lot more before this year and all the hype surrounding AI. What are you doing now? Well, we're re- revisiting the thesis. I mean, if you look back at what we said a year ago about the company's aspirations being too high, about concerns with the product and its adoptability, about the price target, about its use of capital, everything came true. In fact, you know, we scored our predictions. The only thing we were off on was the magnitude of the decline of the stock price. It, it went down to $10 below our target. Um, so we fast forward to today and what's changed? And the answer is really nothing other than a press release and an attachment of the company to the latest uh, AI buzz, which is the chat GPT. But there's so many unanswered questions here, such as how are they gonna make money and what is the customer use case here? that we see nothing but a billion dollar valuation increase all based on speculation and hope. And based upon our field research, which involves talking to former employees knowledgeable about this situation, 
you know, we have real concerns about the promotional timing of this press press release by the company and also about, yeah. you know, how, again, how will it translate into revenues and upside potential for shareholders? So the press release you're talking about is when C3 AI said its generative AI product would be launched March 2023. And, and we're waiting for that. And that got investors excited. We asked the company, Ben, in anticipation of this interview for a comment. They, they didn't want to provide one. But we have talked to Tom Siebel a number of times here on CNBC, including on this show recently. And we asked him about all the hype around the equity market and his stock price. And here's what he said about that. The complexities and vagaries of the equity markets are a little bit beyond me. And, uh, you know, it certainly has its mood swings uh, that are that are um, that are a little bit. Again, this this is beyond my ability to uh, really deal with our business. Okay, we we're building a rapidly growing, you know, enterprise application software company, and our objective is to establish and maintain a market leadership position in enterprise AI. Are they not doing that, Ben? Establishing a market leadership position in enterprise AI with all sorts of companies like an Alphabet, well, Amazon, and and Microsoft. Well, I would encourage you to go back to our original report a year ago. There's no question they have quote unquote partnerships with you know, the Amazons and the Googles and the Microsoft, but what does it mean? Are they actually paying these partners um, to distribute their products or are they getting paid? You know, it's it's very unclear. And and so, you know, again, we have a company here that has high aspirations that, you know, has an acknowledged product in enterprise AI, but what does that have to do with generative AI, okay? And how are their customers, such as Baker Hughes and the US Air Force, gonna use a bot that generates text and images? It's just not clear. Um, what the revenue and business model is here and why investors should be enthusiastic. Now, let's bear in mind here, the analysts who we generally disagree with have not raised their revenue targets $1. Um, and let's also recall here, the companies talked about going cash flow positive, and yet the market analysts still have it going negative. So this company has a real credibility problem and the stock is getting well ahead of the actual fundamentals and understanding of how this company is gonna make money. The CEO has said numerous times in interviews that they're going to be profitable in the next few quarters. I mean, he's made a lot of comments that haven't come true. Uh, he's also said the stock's undervalued, but yet, uh, to the best of our knowledge, the company wasn't buying stock when it was $10 a share. Um, they don't, uh, And also the insiders uh, weren't buying up either. So if, if he's always believed it's undervalued, uh, why not use that $85 million buyback to buy stock at $10? So I think there's a lot of, you know, evidence here of companies saying one thing and something that drastically different happening. And we think the setup is yet again here where the, where once earnings come, investors are going to see this is an aspirational story that frequently disappoints Wall Street. I do wonder, you know, the stock being up 77 percent in the last three months, just how much has to do with the fact that its ticker symbol is AI and retail traders have kind of rushed back into the markets. And you've seen a lot of these sort of meme stocks getting love again, just with this whole trend and buzz around AI? I mean, one could argue their two best assets are, are number one, the cash, which by the way, the cash <laughs> is being depleted. Uh, and number two, the ticker, uh, you know, outside of get, you know, let's, I have to remind everybody that this is a company that frequently pivots its business model to what the best and hottest technology tra trend is. So if you use the Wayback Machine, first it was C3 Energy during cap and trade. Then it was C3 IoT during Internet of Things. Then C3 AI when the AI buzz was hot during uh, during COVID. And are they going to change the ticker to uh, company C3 GPT? 
I mean, one can only speculate. But again, this is a company that has a history of promising things that just don't pan out. And with the stock getting up uh, and adding over a billion dollars here on speculation, we think investors are just setting themselves uh, up for disappointment. And if you don't believe me, again, look at what Deutsche Bank, JP Morgan, and all the bulge brackets have to say as well. They're also constructively negative on the share price. So what and, and what is what is the animal an, animal animals animal analyst primary concern there? That, are they also doubting the status of these partnerships with with Microsoft or the ability to be profitable? I think both. I mean, it's very reflective in in the price targets. I mean, you have analysts sitting at eleven, twelve dollars a share. And again, I point to the fact that not a that the consensus revenue estimates haven't increased one iota since the uh, the announcement of the generative AI suite, and also since the announcement of another Air Force contract, which we point out, by the way, is almost recycled news. This is news the company put uh, in a press release back in December. Um, so there's, you know, again, there's a lot of uh, uh, hype here, a lot of unknown. Um, but our our base case is actually to agree with the sell side analysts here, mm. uh, and we have an applied downside of 45% going back to where um, we initially predicted the stock was. So I guess you don't think that it could be a takeover target or, or an investment target like a chat GPT was for Microsoft. Well, let you know, let's critically analyze that that statement. OK, I mean, they're a company with a 10 year history, uh, to the best of our knowledge, they've never disclosed a strategic committee or, uh, you know, an unsolicited offer or anything related to a takeover. So, you know, why should it be a takeover now just that they're integrating some third parties search into their enterprise? I mean, that's kind of ludicrous to to think that. And furthermore, again, if, if there were strategic interest here, why wasn't the company buying back their stock hand over fist uh, when it was 10, 11, 12 dollars a share? I mean, that would be a no brainer trade if, if, if management really thought that there was a, a takeover offer or, or some uh, meaningful upside. Well, Ben, appreciate you coming on and sharing your, your new research and your new thesis here first. Well, my pleasure. I always enjoy being on CNBC. I uh, hope everyone yourself have a, have a long and, and healthy and happy uh, uh, holiday weekend. Thank you. You too, Ben Axler of Spruce Point. A lot of hype lately on about AI, not, not a lot of pushback. So an interesting point to talk to him about. Let's get a check on the markets here. We're up 90 points on the Dow. It's the only one of the big ones that is positive. The S&P and the NASDAQ both lower. NASDAQ down three quarters of a percent. But it is the one winning on the week and the only one higher of the of the top three. Within the S&P, it's Staples, Utilities and Healthcare, the defensives leading Technology and energy are struggling today. That's why the Nasdaq's down. Small caps, though, having a winning day and week. Take a look at DoorDash, giving up all of its post-earnings pop and more during the session today. We're going to tell you what's behind the reversal straight ahead. And as we had to break, check out some of today's top search tickers on CNBC.com. Ten-year yield right on top. Sort of hovers around the 3.8 where we climbed to yesterday. Tesla higher, 2.3%, reversing some of yesterday's decline on the recalls. The two-year yield, very sensitive to interest rate expectations, higher today. DraftKings up almost 14% and the S&P 500. We'll be right back. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. 
Welcome back to Closing Bell. New details are emerging about former Barclays CEO and former J.P. Morgan executive Jess Staley and his ties with the late disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. Eamon Javers with the latest on this developing and crazy story, Eamon. Yes, Sarah, we're now getting our first on-the-record response here from J.P. Morgan to what we learned this week. In a filing late Wednesday, attorneys for the U.S. Virgin Islands wrote that J.P. Morgan's banking relationship with Epstein was known at the highest levels of the bank. They released a 2008 internal J.P. Morgan email in which one banker says about Epstein's account, I can't imagine it will stay pending Diamond review. <clears throat> now, that's an apparent reference to J.P. Morgan Chief Executive Officer Jamie Diamond and an expectation that he was going to personally review the Epstein accounts in 2008. Now, Epstein remained a client of J.P. Morgan until 2013. But a spokeswoman for J.P. Morgan told me today, we have not seen any evidence of such a review. That is, that they've gone back and looked to see if Jamie Dimon reviewed the Epstein accounts, and they haven't found that. A source familiar with the bank said the 2008 email that surfaced this week was sent by a J.P. Morgan banker, but that J.P. Morgan doesn't know why the person said this. The source familiar who spoke to me has not asked Dimon directly if he remembers reviewing Epstein's account. Now, the source also noted that at the time, back in 2008, Epstein had pled guilty, he'd been sent to jail and registered as a sex offender, but that's not something that J.P. Morgan would close people, people's accounts over at that time. And the source also noted that felons are allowed to keep their bank accounts. As for a wire that Epstein allegedly sent to a woman with an Eastern European name after a conversation with then-J.P. Morgan executive Jess Staley, well, the source said a wire transfer like that isn't something the bank would be typically looking for under its anti-money laundering protocol, Sarah. Uh, in a, I should also say, in a filing this month, uh, J.P. Morgan wrote that the USVI lawsuit is what they call a master class in deflection that seeks to hold J.P. Morgan responsible for not sleuthing out Epstein's crimes over a decade ago. And yet they say at USVI had access at the time to the same information, allegations and rumors about Epstein, which it alleges J.P. Morgan should have acted on. Sarah, back over to you. Eamon, what, what about these emails that have come to light this week from yeah, Epstein and, and Staley about, you know, disgusting things like Snow White and Disney princesses? So what we learned this week is that Jess Staley at J.P. Morgan at the time had a, a deep personal relationship, friendship uh, with Jeffrey Epstein. He was at Jeffrey Epstein's private island in the Caribbean on a number of occasions, exchanged emails back and forth, uh, pictures of young women back and forth with Epstein, uh, and sent this e the email you're referencing about Snow White uh, is, is a, an intriguing one because uh, he says to Epstein, say hello to Snow White, that was fun. Uh, Epstein says back to Staley in the email chain that came to light this week, which character would you like next? And Staley says, Beauty and the Beast. Not exactly clear what that's about, Sarah, but it, it does seem, you know, to indicate the depth of their relationship, or at least the tenor of their relationship, what they were talking about. And the pictures of the young women they were, they were sending back and forth to each other give a sense of what the context of the relationship really was. Eamon Javers, ew, that's gross. Thank you. you Appreciate it. Up next, the CEO of Alternative Asset Management case on why investors should be rethinking the traditional 60-40 portfolio and diversify into alternative investments. You've got the Dow up 104 points. NASDAQ is still under pressure, but keep in mind, it's higher by almost half a percent to finish the week. Closing bell will be right back. 
Welcome back to Closing Bell. 28 minutes left of trading. The 60-40 portfolio showing signs of life in the early innings of the year. But our next guest is now making the case for a 50-30-20 split instead, which leaves space for alternative investments. Joining me now is Matt Brown, CEO and founder of Case, an alt investment platform for financial advisors. It's good to see you, Matt. Great to be here, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So that this would certainly help your business, right, if 20 percent of the allocation was for alternative investments. How, how does it work, what you do, connecting the financial advisors to the, the alt funds of a Carlyle or a Blackstone? Yeah, that's exactly right. So our mission when we set out was to create a technology company that connects financial advisors, primarily independent financial advisors, so RIAs and IBDs, with a broad menu of alternative investment funds, such as private equity, private credit, hedge fund strategies, real estate, uh, et cetera. Uh, and the problem that we were solving was that there was a very unlevel playing field. The biggest institutions in the world have been investing in private equity and alternatives for decades, uh, allocation percentages up to 30 to 50 percent, while advisors really had you know, one, two, three percent, primarily because there just wasn't an efficient way for them to access and incorporate those alts in a portfolio. And that's what we solved. So how have, the, how have the funds been doing lately? I mean, the public market got killed last year. NASDAQ was down 30 percent. A lot of people sought refuge in, in private and alternatives like private equity. How's the performance been? So uh, as a platform, we're neutral, but we can observe, uh, which is great. Uh, so we've seen a tremendous amount of volume in what we're calling a very uncertain time. You know, we have political uncertainty, we have economic uncertainty, you know, interest rates, uh, inflation, et cetera. So advisors at a pace that we've never seen it are now moving into alternative investments because they see that alts when added to a portfolio can not only reduce some of this volatility, but also put them in a position to capitalize on opportunities that the public market wouldn't offer them. Uh, so strategies like private equity and private credit uh, have been really in demand. And then on the more liquid side, uh, macro hedge funds uh, also in demand, those that can navigate the global market. So uh, it's very interesting, our position to be an observer of trend and flow uh, and uh, watching what the advisors are doing. What do you say to the critics like uh, Cliff Asnes, for instance, who, who wonders about the private equity model because it doesn't get mark to market? You know, that, that, that they get these exorbitant fees because they're shielding people from the public markets when, in fact, they're not reflecting the true valuation. I think due diligence on funds and their valuation policy is critical. Uh, you know, one of the things that we noticed in the financial advisor community is that they lacked a lot of the resources to do deep dive due diligence. Uh, and as a result, we partnered with Mercer, uh, who does a very thorough investment and uh, operational due diligence review of all funds, which, of course, includes their mark to market policy. Uh, so um, we've seen many funds, of course, uh, look at their marks on a quarterly basis and make adjustments. Uh, so um, we uh, we feel very comfortable that the industry is really institutionalized and is quite transparent on that topic. So how have the flows looked so far, Matt, this year when when things are feeling a lot different. Stocks are working, 6040 is working, right? Bonds are working. You're getting a higher yield. Has that been a competitive headwind for what you're doing? Yeah, just the stats that we can observe. Uh, we have over 100% growth in the advisors that are now using the platform uh, year over year and also increasing in the early, year, uh, early months of this year. Uh, volumes, meaning the amount of capital that they're putting across the platform into alts is again up high double digits. 
very broadly across many different funds and strategies. We don't see any slowdown in the allocation of alts. I think we have to remember that wealth management north of $40 trillion in assets has very low allocation rates. So even going from 1% to 2% to 5% or 10% means that trillions of dollars are going to come out of the traditional uh, fixed income equity portfolios into alts. So there's just a lot of room to grow. So there's a lot that, that is in the word alts, right? PE, hedge fund, all sorts of products that you offer. What, what's the hottest right now? Uh, well, we, we, as I said, we can uh, we can observe a lot of trends, uh, but uh, we're definitely seeing a large uh, amount of flows going towards uh, private equity uh, and private credit. Uh, those tend to be areas that not only have the right strategies, but a lot of the firms that offer those strategies, a few you mentioned, others like Apollo and others, have actually been very thoughtful about creating fund structures that enable wealth management to be able to invest easily in these strategies and then, of course, scale that across their end client book. This is, a, I mean, this is what we're talking about. It's not about the asset manager or the financial advisor. This mm. is about giving better outcomes to the end client with a more balanced and diversified portfolio. And I know Apollo is an investor of yours, right, Matt? You were last valued more than a billion dollars last year. What, what are your plans? Plans to go public? Uh, uh, well, you know, TBD on that. I think in this market, we're, uh, we're focused on growth, uh, mm -hmm. focused on scale. Uh, we've doubled the uh, number of uh, teammates that we have at the firm. Huge emphasis on getting our uh, technology uh, and remaining kind of that state-of-the-art spot that we've always been in. Uh, you know, a lot of the automation, digitization and machine learning that we've brought to the market have smoothed out the entire transaction process. That was very archaic uh, and one of the main reasons why advisors have not allocated to alts. So uh, yeah. we're trying to bring a modern approach uh, and it seems to be working. We'll keep an eye on you. Matt Brown, thank you very much. Founder and CEO. Thanks so Kate. much. Take care. Appreciate it. We are at the session highs for the Dow. We're up 130 or so. It's a more defensive feel in today's market. What's leading the Dow is United Healthcare, Amgen, McDonald's, and J&J. &J. The S&P 500 is down a third of a percent. It's being dragged lower by tech and energy. And the Nasdaq is down a little more than half a percent. Up next, Wall Street is buzzing about how the threat of losing some of its most iconic characters to the public domain is already turning into a horror show for Disney. Details straight ahead. What is Wall Street buzzing about? A dark turn for Winnie the Pooh. What it means for Disney. A new R-rated horror movie using Winnie the Pooh intellectual property is getting a wide release in theaters this week after the beloved kid-friendly characters entered the public domain at the beginning of 2022. It's already a hit in its first theatrical market, hauling in a million dollars in Mexico's box office, which is more than 10 times what it actually cost to produce. This marks the first of what could be a rush of films poaching from Disney's catalog. The filmmaker behind the Winnie the Pooh slasher film is already planning horror movies based on Peter Pan and Bambi. Yikes. And the big cheese Mickey himself is entering the public domain next year, or at least the iteration from the original Steamboat Willie short. Disney will still have a trademark on that version of Mickey, but not copyright protection, which could create a legal quagmire around the character. New releases would have to make clear there is no affiliation with Disney. It's a thin line to tread since the brand and the character are synonymous. We spoke with Comscore senior media analyst earlier. He said it's more of a nuisance than a real threat and that Disney will have to pick its battles in fighting off any reinterpretation of its characters. Comscore saying blood and honey is pulling in good numbers at the domestic box office already. 
Meantime, Disney is still the champion of the box office. It's new Ant-Man and the Wasp sequel, grossing nearly $18 million in Thursday previews ahead of this holiday weekend. And speaking of this holiday weekend, I just want to tell you all that today is my last day of Closing Bell. My friend Scott Wapner will be anchoring this hour after the weekend, starting next week. And I'll be hosting Squawk on the Street from 10 a.m. to noon, along with my friends Carl Cantania and David Faber. I also just want to say I'm so proud of this show and this Closing Bell team, Aaron, Zev, Leal, Karina, Karis, David, Donna, Mike, and our leader, Lisa. Thank you all. I'm beyond excited about moving to the mornings where I'll be working to bring you the best interviews with the newsmakers and all the intel on the markets and the economy, as I always try to do. So I will see you Tuesday at 10 a.m. But first, I've got one more market zone left, and we have got a number of stories to cover. Deere's blowout earnings report, plus what to expect when retail earnings kick off next week. The market zone is next, with the Dow up 111 points. Closing down market zone, CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day as always. Plus, Sima Modi's here on Deer and Melissa Repko on next week's slew of retail earnings. We'll kick it off with the broad market though, Mike. Higher on the Dow, it's the defensive names that are getting a boost today. The S&P is pulling back half a percent. Any catalyst here as we look to end the week now? Lower on the S&P by about half a percent. Higher on the Nasdaq. You know, I think the catalyst is mostly just the context, people trying to digest the new edge of hawkishness from the Fed this week, the little bump higher in yields. And I, I do think one of the takeaways is the market really has been able to churn in place as opposed to really give up much. Now, who knows if that's going to last? There has been a loss of momentum. Some of the more aggressive parts of the market that kind of led out of the gate this year have rolled over to some degree. And you mentioned defensive stocks are uh, retracing a little bit higher today. But uh, for the most part, it's about, you know, we're going to be data point to data point on the economy to fine tune the outlook for the Fed. So far, yields calmed down today a little bit. Uh, so I think that's probably one of the reasons why the market was sort of held in a narrow range. I mentioned earlier, monthly expiration probably uh, has sort of muted the volatility around this 4050 to 4100 area of the S&P. Let's talk Deere because it is the top performer on the S&P 500 today after reporting blowout first quarter earnings also raising its full year guidance thanks to strong demand and higher prices for its agriculture and construction equipment. Seema Modi joins us with the story here and a 7.2% pop for the stock. I guess, Seema, the question is how, how much longer this cycle goes for Deere. That is definitely the question, Sarah. I'm just happy that it made it into this historic market zone. Uh, but listen, there was this <laughs> investor angst going into today's report as to whether farmers can continue to spend millions of dollars on upgrading their agriculture equipment. But today's report really uh, saying that the, those concerns are overblown. The order book is full for 2023, Sarah. However, some weakness in the smaller tractor business and CFO Josh Jepson telling me that's really due to the weakness they're seeing in the housing sector and higher interest rates. Uh, but overall, they continue to spend more on research and development. So the quick question is going to be, prices are expected to moderate. At the same time, their costs are going up because they're making this big bet on technology. What does that mean for profitability going into the latter half of this year? Uh, and so for that's going to definitely be a question sort of April to May, looking to the second half of 2023, Sarah. But for now, investors clearly loving the company's outlook and the stock you can see up over 7%. And I love that you've called this a historic market. Zone. It is. Thank you for that. 
Um, what about what about the infrastructure bill now that it's getting implemented? Are, are they a prime benefit? I think of a deer yes. or a caterpillar as the prime benefit. Are any of these companies talking about that? You're, I'm so glad you brought that up. That's exactly what Josh Jepson, at CFO, said. Is finally you're starting to see the benefits of the infrastructure bill at the state level. So you're seeing spending increase for construction. So that's helping their tractor sales. That's helping sales for drillers. Um, and that, is, that read-through is certainly being passed on and helping deer. And we didn't really hear Caterpillar really reference that as much. GE did a bit, but uh, you're starting to see more companies saying that the benefits are kicking through, and that certainly played into their results today. Yeah, the stock, I mean, Mike, how, how does the stock How does the stock look? How much is factored in there as far as some of these, these factors that are helping deer? I mean, deer, and, and actually you can jo- put Caterpillar and Agco in there as well, they are reflecting a lot of outperformance by the heavy equipment area in general. Uh, these long cycles that are working, there's some of the companies, rare ones, where you are seeing some upside to earnings forecast. So that, and they don't yet really look expensive because the, the earnings support has been there. So I do think it's part of a broader theme. It's not just a one-off. Uh, we don't know if it's going to last forever. We don't know exactly how uh, you know elongated and, and uh, intense the CapEx cycle is going to be. But this has been a bit of a sweet spot within industrials. Seema Modi, Seema, thank you. Appreciate it. Let's hit DoorDash. It's taking investors on a wild ride today. The food delivery company initially rallying after reporting a revenue beat and then upbeat guidance although its fourth quarter loss was wider than expected. Meanwhile, several analysts expressing concerns about how a potential slowdown in consumer spending would impact this company, something DoorDash's CEO addressed earlier on TechCheck. Listen. The consumer is weaker this year than they were you know, last year, and that's because there's been several quarters of persisting relatively high inflation. And so you know, we're certainly you know, cautious, and, and all of this is, is built into the guidance. Quite a turnaround, Mike. Stock's down seven and a half percent now. Yeah, it, you know, and I do think it reflects a few things. One is naturally the stock is up huge off the lows, up fifty percent, uh, like a lot of these high growth stocks that had been really killed last year. Uh, I think the company itself, in its report, pretty much has control uh, and, and a good story to tell on things under its control, like you know the subscriber uh, business and overall volumes. But there's a sensitivity to what's going to happen to growth rates, given the fact not just that consumers might soften up, but it's an expensive stock. It's all about the you know cash flow to come in years out, not right now. It's still pretty uh, like 20 times you know, EBITDA cash flow right now. What I did find interesting is the tone that the company struck in its shareholder letter, uh, basically telling investors, we are going to focus on free cash flow per share as their long-term metric. And historically, for all companies, that is a very closely tied to shareholder performance and shareholder reward. So I think that's a good message. They're going to have to buy back a lot of stock to offset uh, stock-based compensation and all the rest of it. But in the near term, it is all about just the pacing of how the, the consumer acts right here. They already have 50% of the market domestically. So uh, there's going to be growth sensitivity and valuation sensitivity even when the company does the right thing. I just, Mike, I just want to point out the move here in consumer staples, utilities, and healthcare because they're all working today. They all worked last year in terms of outperformance and took a back seat as, as the market expected the Fed to pause, perhaps the, Fed, the economy to go into recession, two things that we're questioning you know, this year so far about whether, whether there's good values here if, if you do think we're in for more turbulence. 
Well, if you absolutely believe that we're in for more turbulence and the economic cycle uh, is on borrowed time and Treasury yields are going to stay pretty tame, then, yeah, you would expect that would provide shelter. And I do think that that's been the day-to-day argument in the market is whether, in fact, that's the playbook for this year and, and therefore, the underperformance of uh, defensive stocks have given you a way in or uh, if, in fact, right now the cyclical leadership uh, is actually telling a better uh, message right now. So I think on a one-day basis, the pullback in Treasury yields from the highs has just allowed them to bounce a little bit. Utilities have been pretty weak uh, coming into today. So uh, hard to say that today changes the overall conclusion you draw from it. Energy getting hit really hard. It's down 3.5% as a sector for the week. It's down almost 7%. What are you seeing overall in the market internals? Yeah, definitely on the softer side today, Sarah. So we did start lower. We were down close to 1%. uh, And you do see more declining volume versus advancing volume. But on that point of somewhat cyclical leadership, look at the Russell 2000 small caps on a week-to-day basis relative to the S&P. You see it's still uh, kind of opened up a little bit of a lead here, also outperforming on a year-to-date basis. So there is a bit of a uh, risk appetite that's at play in the markets. The volatility index now in the 20s, uh, or just over 20 right now. So we're up off the lows near 18. That makes sense. We're starting to brace for maybe a different Fed message and, and yields are on the move, but still kind of bumping along the bottom end of that one-year range, Sarah. Mike, thank you. We'll let you get ready for overtime, which I know you're hosting today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Let's, let's talk about retail because it is retail's turn in the spotlight. A rush of big earnings out next week. The list including heavyweights like Walmart, Home Depot, also smaller players like Overstock, Wayfair, TJX, and Etsy. Those reports will give us some insight here on consumer spending and sentiment. Melissa Repko joins us now. What, what are the expectations at this point, Melissa? The overwhelming message I'm hearing from Sarah is that investors expect a more cautious tone. They expect that retailers will set the bar a little bit lower and will also have a lot of cautious expectations when it comes to CapEx and things like hiring, that they're going to be really careful about the way that they plan for the year ahead. And some of them may also tout that they will have healthier margins in the year ahead. Remember, looking back over the past six months, a lot of them have been hammered by excess inventory and also have been paying higher for freight. So as that recedes, Perhaps even as sales rates slow, still they'll have healthier margins. So that could be the good news here for investors. Is it still, Melissa, a case of of COVID disrupting this retail business? Like if you're in electronics or apparel or home goods and furniture, you're hurting right now versus those that are more tied to the consumer staples, the groceries and the services? I think the story is actually becoming more about inflation and less about COVID. So people are thinking a little bit differently about how they're spending money because the budget may be changing and their priorities are changing. Because as the world opens back up again, we're seeing services really come roaring back. And for retailers that sell goods, that may not be good news. In January, we saw stronger than expected retail sales, but it's important to note that that was led by restaurants and bars and the sales seen there. So that could come at the expense of some of these retailers that are planning for the year ahead as they sell things and, and not you know, selling food and, and drinks and travel. Yeah. Walmart in particular, what, what, what are the analysts looking for there? Well, for Walmart, one of its huge advantages is it sells necessities. It sells groceries. You know, it's really a powerhouse in that area, and that could really help it. Another important thing to listen for is progress that Walmart is making with alternate revenue streams like advertising. That could help with its margins as well. Walmart shares up one and a half percent. Melissa Refko, thank you very much. Thanks, great to see you. For 
those retail earnings. Great to see you as well. Just want to show you a, d- a deep dive here into the markets as we head into the close. The S&P 500 down a third of 1%. There's the Dow. It's up a third of 1%. It is outperforming today. And that's because you have names like Amgen, the healthcare names, really. Amgen adding 73 points. Uh, excuse me. Amgen adding 40, United Healthcare adding 73, McDonald's, J&J, Merck, P&G. That's what's working today. What's dragging on the Dow, Microsoft, Home Depot, and Chevron. Home Depot reports earnings next week. A third of 1% lower on the S&P 500. Staples, utilities, healthcare, industrials, and financials are all higher. Into the close, you've got energy, technology, materials, all these sectors with a 1% decline. Uh, Communication services also lower. But on the week as a whole, you are seeing the Nasdaq outperform. It's up six-tenths of 1%, while the S&P 500 is down a third of 1%. There's the Nasdaq right now. What's helping the Nasdaq is Tesla. Tesla's having a rebound day. Amgen's in there as well, T-Mobile. But some of the big cap tech players are under pressure today. Microsoft, NVIDIA, Apple, and Amazon. What's also getting in the way here could be higher treasury yields, a little bit firmer. Actually, they're a little bit lower right now, higher treasury prices, and a stronger dollar, which is sort of reasserting itself here this afternoon. Uh, It could be weighing on the trade. You've also got some of the the winners of this year a little bit under pressure, potentially taking a breather, as Mike Santoli said. Keep in mind, this is a year where we're still a lot higher for the, the market, and a lot of the groups that have been driving it were the hardest hit of last year, these tech names, the momentum players, that's what's working. Even the ARK Innovation Fund, which I was just looking at, having a good week and an overall good year and a rebound year. As we head into the bell, take a look. Dow up 127. It's near the highs of the day. Spent most of the day lower. No real economic data, but we're still trying to digest all those hot reports lately. Hot PPI this week. Jobless claims below 200,000. Hot retail sales. That's going to do it for me here on Closing Bell. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.